everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. I'm Bob Kaler. I'm solo today, but I've got two guests with me that I'm really excited to introduce. And uh, Justice Hunter and Phil Talon are authors of a new resource coming out soon from Seedbed titled The Absolute Basics of the Wesleyan Way. And Justice is Assistant Professor of Church History at United Theological Seminary. Phil is Assistant Professor of Theology at Houston Baptist University. So welcome to both of you. Glad to be here. Yeah. Well, Phil, I want to start with you because you put together a very similar resource to this uh, just a few years ago titled The Absolute Basics of the Christian Faith. We actually use that in confirmation here with our church. So it was a, a book and then a, a really creative uh, video resource that that goes with it. And this new book dives deeper into some Wesleyan distinctives. And it, and it seems like these are really needed resources, particularly today when people have all kinds of different ideas about Wesley's theology, about Methodist practice in particular. We're really kind of at the stage of life asking, what does it really mean to be Methodist? So how would you describe the state of catechesis among most Christians today, and particularly among the Methodist tribe. Um, we, we've certainly seen that kind of be all over the board. So I want to start with you, Phil, and then I want to ask Justice, who's the church historian, to also answer that question. What's the state of catechesis today? Thanks. Uh, well, in my experience, and I'm not an expert on this, so I can't, you know, say what everybody's doing, but in my experience, it's it's quite uneven, you know. But there's, there's a lot of variation, you know, between churches and so uh you know some places like where where we currently attend they spend three years uh, as part of confirmation you know walking students through the the basics of christian belief and the distinctives of uh, wesleyan theology and and uh, church tradition and and they try and make it a really formative, you know, kind of holistic experience as well. But um, I've been part of other churches and this is the, the one where I was uh, working and serving when, when I wrote the book, you know, that, um, you know, spent maybe eight weeks, you know, kind of very quickly going through sort of a just series of, you know, basic topics that were taught, you know, from a wide variety of perspectives. So, you know, people who are teaching, you know, may have come out of the you know, Baptist background or come from a, you know, more of a Presbyterian perspective. And so um, there is a, you know, a lot of variation, certainly nothing like what's laid out in the, you know, the United Methodist Book of Discipline suggestions for kind of how confirmation education should go. And my own personal experience was, you know, we, was, we kind of went in the pastor's office and sat down and he talked to the Apostles' Creed and he talked about, you know, some basic things we met a couple of times. And it was really neat, you know, because he got to have time with the pastor and then he took us to annual conference and we went to the youth section of annual conference and, and then we stood up and were confirmed. And so I, I suspect that the, there's a, a really wide range. I think I'll, there are, there's a, something of a revival of, of interest in catechesis and of the confirmation process. And so there are some churches that are really um, trying to do a lot with it and make a lot of it. And then there are some places where it's, you know, um, treated in a kind of a, a hasty manner. And, and so, um, you know, one of the, the reasons why we, we wrote the book, of course, is that we wanted to resource 
people who are ministering to, um, especially to young people who are going through the, the process of confirmation. And I do think that that sixth to eighth grade period is a very important one in the, um, in everybody's life uh, and in the life of, of young people in the church. So we wanted to create some resources and, and give those over. Now, I mean, obviously what we're offering is not an official catechesis. You know, we're not in positions of ecclesial authority to uh, create such things, um, but we are trying to, to just give some more material that's, that's accessible, but also is, is theologically grounded. And that is also, you know, coming from within the, the Wesleyan tradition. Yeah. I came out of a, a PCA Presbyterian background where we actually memorized the Westminster Shorter Catechism as kids. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, not too many kids did that, but I was pretty nerdy at the time. And so I did, but it was a lot of memorization. And I don't, mem I don't remember any of the questions except for the first one, which is what is the chief end of man, right? That's the one everybody remembers because it's the shortest one. So, uh, so I, I love the idea of having confirmation materials that are more integrative. We certainly didn't have videos. We didn't have any artwork. We didn't have any sort of questions that were geared to us. It was memorize and, and regurgitate, which wasn't yeah, bad. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's something that I think we need to reclaim a bit of, which is that, you know, I think the, there's been this, this cultural boogeyman, something the church has been worried about, which is the kind of the figure of the stern priest or pastor grilling the, you know, the young person in this very stressful um, process. Um, and, but we've, if that's sort of, if the kind of terrifying authoritative um, unjoyful experience is one way to fall off the horse, there's another, and that's the way that we, I think a lot of uh, Methodist churches and other churches are where they are now, which is, this is really a way just to have a, some conversations about your faith and what do you right. think, you know, who do you think God is? And, and it's, um, and there's no authority, you know, behind it. And, and, you know, confirmation is not, is not intended to be a, a way for people to discover their faiths for themselves. It's really a way for the church to confirm as right. it were, that you understand these teachings and are committed to a life of discipleship and following Jesus. And so the confirmation really runs the other direction. And so as part of the absolute basic Christian faith, I did include some questions. Here's a question. Here's an answer that is memorizable. You know, a student can kind of should be able to repeat it. And then the chapters then explain what's meant by that statement so that they comprehend what it is they're repeating. Yeah. And I, I felt like that that was really helpful. I mean, I, I don't remember it negatively at all. I, I think there was a sense of, wow, this is really serious. And then we had to actually stand in front of the church board, the session, and not wow. only say the answers, but explain what they meant. So it was a theology exam for a ninth grader, which was <laughs> pretty intense. But but I will say it galvanized my my way of thinking about faith and and that it was serious. The doctrine is a serious thing. So, so I, I love that combination of, of kind of thinking about this as a very serious thing, but also, um, also giving it more accessibility for, for young people and, and for others who want to come into that. Justice, what do you think about catechesis, particularly in the United Methodist Church as it, as it stands now and where have we come from and, and, and what's the state of it and what do we need to do? Uh, it's a great question. I think a couple of things. Now, I, I was raised in the Free Methodist Church. My father was a Free Methodist uh, pastor throughout my childhood. He eventually actually became a United Methodist pastor later in life. Um, and, you know, we, 
in the Free Methodist Church, there's 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 not a confirmation process, at least not the, not the kind of low, uh, evangelical churches I grew up in. But but we there was not a formal confirmation process. Nevertheless, we were constantly being catechized, right? So I remember you know, we, did, we did Bible quizzing. That was a big part of kind of the, the, the catechetical instruction we received, the formation we received. You know, you memorize scripture, you'd show up. And my memory has always been bad. I don't know how I ended up being a historian, you know, so I would, I would always be kind of like middling, <laughs> very middling performer, you know. Um, uh, but but this was sort of a whole a whole culture, you know, within the church where you'd be formed. And you'd be formed in other ways. You know, you'd receive instruction. Uh, the youth group I grew up in was very instruction oriented. It was, you know, I, we saw the transition kind of in my youth period to where it became more about, you know, making a big mess and, you know, running around outside and playing cool games and things. Um, but I just definitely remember earlier in my life, it was much more catechetical orientation, instruction orientation in, in, um, in Sunday school and in, and in youth, youth programming. I think that uh, what I hear commonly from my friends who were raised in the United Methodist Church is that it was very much the sort of therapy, a lot of them received very sort of therapeutic, um, don't step on anyone's toes type approach to their training and, and their theological formation. And I think, I, th I think there are a few things to understand about that. One thing is, I think there is this, and we wrestle with this in, in composing the book, there is, this, there is this way you can go wrong in thinking about it strictly as sort of content dump, right? Uh, catechesis, formation of a Christian mind, is not strictly a content dump, right? It's an integration of the mind with the heart and the spirit, right? And, um, and, you know, one of the, one of the things we, we really had a lot of confidence in, in writing this book is that good theological information um, can actually enliven the heart. And I think that's a very Wesleyan way of thinking about this, you know, understanding God properly ought to draw you into deeper love of God. Uh, these things go hand in hand. And so, and so I think we, we really kind of tried to, to, to build a resource that would allow for both the information delivery, and we do put, have a lot of information in the book, you know, but also for it to be a transformative um, uh, experience for students as well. And I think that's really what we're trying to to um, to bring to the table now. Now it's pretty it's pretty basic. I think we have to cover basic things, uh, but the key is to cover basic things in a way that's not reductive. We have to cover the basics, but in a way that's sort of enlivening, and, and even a mature Christian can read, kind of go back to the basics, as it were, and and draw on the depth of really really potent um, faith that we have and we've been gifted. And so I, I think that the, the um, hopefully we're, we're kind of pushing the ball forward on that front with this, with this new source. Yeah. And I want to emphasize that this is not just designed for young people. I, I, we used absolute basics with adults as well, and they found it to be really accessible because so often we give them so much stuff. And if you're a new Christian or if you, I'm always amazed at how many people, even who transfer into a United Methodist Church from another one, because we do a new member class and we use all of that material, just don't know the the very basics. And so being able to do it in a simple way really is is communicative and and does help them too. So this is a this is a universal kind of resource that can be used well. And you've you guys have crammed a lot of stuff into a very small book. And hence, it's called the absolute basics. Um, so as we think about that, what would you say are the absolute basics that every Methodist should know about our theology and practice? How did you narrow that down? Justice, I'm going to start with you on that. 
Yeah, this was a difficult question for us. Uh, when we sat down and started talking about the book, we knew that we wanted to have a bit of history. And, and that's actually why Phil invited me to, to partner with him on this project. We wanted to do some, some Methodist history. We wanted to tell people about who John Wesley was, what he was about, um, and, and, and in some ways to fill, to fill a sense of connection to our past and our heritage. Um, but then we also wanted to explain theologically what makes Methodist theology, what's peculiar to it, right? You've got the absolute basis of the Christian faith, which is going to cover, which covers sort of, you know, there's the doctrine of the Trinity, here's the cross, all the stuff that we confess in, um, in union with our brothers and sisters and other traditions. But what is it that makes us the particular type of Christians that a Wesleyan is? And so we felt that we felt uh, two things. We wanted to cover theology and practice. And within theology, we, 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 uh, we felt that really what, where, where the key insights lie are in what I call the doctrine of grace or the way of salvation. Um, the way in which that's where really John Wesley had a lot of insight about how grace comes to us and the order uh, of, of the Christian life and God's action in our, in our life. And so we wanted to focus on the way of salvation. And that's really what the theology section's on. But we also added on the end there, as I was writing, I remember um, I thought, well, we, we, we really need an extra chapter here because we really need to talk about one of our key doctrinal distinctives that totally sets it apart, which is entire sanctification. And actually, that, that was a later edition. We hadn't sketched that in the initial book, but that is a total, that is a completely distinctive doctrine that Methodism holds to. And so we thought, you know, we need to explain this because it really orients a lot of the other, the whole way of salvation. So we actually have a whole chapter on the way of self, on, on entire sanctification. And then we talk a little bit about practices. And there we wanted to talk about, um, again, think, there we felt the way I, the way I was thinking about it as we were doing it was, you know, the target for this book is people who are probably grown up around the church or have been in the church for a little bit. And now what we're trying to do is kind of thread together how all these different experiences and ways of speaking they've, they've, they've run into, how they fit together and, and weave them together. And so we wanted to focus on sacraments. We thought that was important to talk about because Methodist, if you grew up in a Baptist church, for instance, and then you come into a Methodist church, you, you are going to encounter a different sacramental practice than you maybe grew up around, right? Or if, you, or if you're just coming into a Methodist church for the first time. And so we wanted to explain kind of why we do the sacraments the way we do them and to show how that practice is connected to what we've said before about the way of salvation. And then, we had a, and then we had a chapter we want to talk about sort of distinct, distinctive. So our sacraments are Eucharist and communion and uh, Lord's Supper and uh, baptism. So we want to talk about both of those things. Then we also want to talk about new and novel things that make the Methodist movement what it is. And that's where we talk about classes and bands and things like that. So that's kind of how we ended up with this. We thought about, you know, some other ideas, but, but I think we just definitely decided we crammed enough in by the time it was done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, of course, one of the kind of guiding ideas and themes of the book is that Wesley is a methodical guy, right? You know, he, um, uh, and so uh, his, and that applies to a lot of different areas. Um, so there's this, this way that he talks about salvation, you know, where he's really going to kind of lay it out. Okay, this is sort of this is happening here and this is the sort of grace that's operating kind of in this in this moment this way and then you kind of you move you know you move on and you're moving on a journey of grace and salvation you know but it has these steps that we can really kind of look at and um and so you know we we spend a fair amount of time with the 
the way of salvation. And, and then also in sort of talking about church life, I think we, you know, really wanted to kind of get at this idea that, you know, Wesley was very, understood the importance of form, you know, the importance of, of liturgical structures, of organizational structures. Um, but he never, um, he never allowed himself to think that, you know, form is everything. He understood, you know, there has to be real power here too. I mean, you, you know, and, and that these two things do relate in ways that, you know, where there's, there's some kind of tensions almost. I mean, so when, you know, kind of God's power shows up, it does, there are some ways that form changes, you know, and we would expect to see that, um, uh, kind of breaking, you know, certain kind of traditions as, you know, as God is moving in, in certain ways. However, we don't throw out the importance of, of those traditions as well. So we're trying to kind of maintain this tension. To some degree, I think, you know, what we're describing is the, the particular place almost that Wesleyanism has within kind of high church, low church traditions. It's always kind of just like been stuck in the middle there, you know, not, not too high, not too low, um, and that there's a reason for that. You know, there's actual reasons that, that, um, that Wesley, I think, you know, imbues into his, his movement that explain kind of why Methodists are the way they are. Churches are kind of pretty, but not too pretty, you know. Um, why, you know, why we have the pro such an emphasis on programs, you know, like you want the good, you know, Sunday school program or sort of, you know, you know, youth ministry program. United Methodist Church is often a bad place to look or other Methodist churches aren't there's because this emphasis on form and being methodical about meeting together and the structures of life that we do yeah we do we do a lot of, on this form power thing um and we use a lot of images you know imagine imagine you have the form of a, of a house right but you don't have the power of home you know you sort of you just have an empty shell of a house nobody really wants to live in it but uh, but if you only have the power of home with no house no structure over you then you know it's kind of not not the greatest place to live in December, say, if you're in Ohio, right? So, or January. So we really kind of want to hold, and I think this is actually part of the genius. It's not a milk toast kind of, let's just split the difference and take 50% on everything, which we sometimes, um, sometimes that's sort of like the mainline mon Methodist mantra. No, it's, it's an insight that there's actually real deep substance, but you have to have the power accompanying the form in order to, um, to, to sort of see the depth of the thing. Yeah, very much what Wesley said, the fear of, that the Methodist movement will become the form of religion without the power, unless we hold to the doctrine and discipline we learned at first, which is yeah. where I want to go. I, I Wesley obviously doesn't come up with this out of nowhere. I mean, he's part of a larger church tradition. And, and as I was thinking about this book and been thinking about catechesis in general, it's one of the things we're talking about in the WCA council. And we actually recently are, formed a task force on catechesis for the new denomination. And I was reading uh, uh, Kreider's book on the patient ferment of the early church, which was mind-blowing on catechesis in the early church, three years of, of instruction before becoming allowed into the, the fellowship, allowed into communion. Um, really focused more on Sermon on the Mount and and character and formation and things like that than it was on on doctrinal information. So what, when we think about this and we think about preparing for the launch of a new traditional Methodist denomination, that we need to have more intentional catechesis around that for for both those who are currently part of the church and those who will come to Christian faith through the church, 
So what can we learn from church history about the most effective ways of training up disciples of Jesus who are both theologically and practically grounded, form and power? Um, I'm going to start with you, Justice, the church historian, and then Phil, I want you to comment on that as well. And I'm thinking not only the broader church, but also uh, of our own Wesleyan tradition as examples. Yeah, a couple of things come to mind to me. Um, one is this insight that Wesleyan inherited a church in good doctrinal condition, right? The Church of England in his time was, was actually not in doctrinal disarray like we, as, as we live in today. And so, um, so we, we sort of have to think about, you know, think seriously about how the great sort of catechetical endeavors of the Reformation um, produce an environment where people were serious about understanding their faith and, and serious about taking it on, okay? So I think that's one, one resource we can look to is the Anglican tradition, um, the, the, uh, the catechetical instruction in that tradition. The other, of course, is, is as you've mentioned, the, the, the heritage of the early church is, is phenomenal on this front, um, distinctive in other ways. And especially, you know, this sense of, I, I think there, what we see, and I think that we have, we have to realize we have real opportunity around uh, key practices like baptism and like um, like like the Lord's Supper, um, and specifically the act of proclaiming the faith together in a creed, for instance, on a regular basis. Okay, when you when you read about the early church, you think about oh man, three years of instruction. Um, we have all these incredible. I was just I was just looking at I was I was building a syllabus actually for this this um, program I run called the Pastors Theology Seminar. And we decided, this, the students had said, hey, we'd like to read early Christian catechesis. That's, that's what we want to focus on, the catechumenate in the early church next year. So I was like, okay, you know, I'll build a syllabus and we'll, we'll go after this together. And I started looking and trying to pick, pick a set of texts by Cyril of Jerusalem for this. And I suddenly realized, we have way too many pages here. The students, they're going to be outraged. You know, what, what, you know, how many, I think eight, I found 18 Lenten sermons, you know, and then another, another eight or so mystic, mystagogical sermons, which would be the sermons. So basically for through Lent, you would hear these long expositions in preparation to become baptized, right? Then after you're baptized, you receive um, the Lord's Supper for the first time. And then you go through this mystagogical, this mystagogical lectures, which are basically, this is what you just did. This is what's happening when you, when you come to the table. And so is this long period centered around this, this important act of the church um, of all Christians standing together and professing the faith we believe, okay? I think that's exactly, there, there's, there's insight there about um, both the importance of that public profession together and also the, the seriousness with which the early church took making a, procession, a profession like that. Um, so maybe there's, a, there's an opportunity there. This instruction can go before and be aimed at helping people understand what it is they say when they say, I believe in God, the father, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think uh, one thing I would, you know, add is, you know, one of the increasing needs that I think every tradition will have to take on, especially if, if that, if a church is growing and producing new disciples and baptizing adult converts, especially, um, but this is also going to be the case for um, for young people as well, is that there is a sense in which our context is going to be much more like the early church than, you know, our parents or, you know, grandparents uh, context, and that you're, 
in a sense, everybody is kind of undergoing sort of a interreligious conversion, right? Um, just so many of the givens are, um, uh, are, are now up for grabs. And I think that, you know, of course, then part of that is a real sort of intentionality talking about, you know, a range of issues that it might, you might not normally kind of have to take on if you have people who are, you know, basically just moving from one denomination to another and just need to learn about the distinctives with people who are really, and I feel this pull in my own life too. I mean, a pull to think and be in ways that, you know, are very different from uh, how the church teaches just naturally as a result of kind of participating in, you know, wider cultural forces. And so, um, so thinking about, you know, uh, catechesis as partly interreligious kind of um, interreligious conversion, you know, sort of moving from one um, religion to another. I think that that's something to bear in mind. And and the other the other big thing that I think is is important to keep in mind is that um, you know Jesus when he initiated his um, his disciples to start his own religious movement uh, spent a lot of time with them. Right. I mean, so he since he spent those three years, there's the policies of Rome's kind of three years with with his disciples building relationships, them building relationships with each other, um, because that's really the kind of cohesion that you need in order to resist, you know, a culture that tells you that you're you're wrong and that you're bad and that you're um, you're a disgrace um, is you need a strong community. And and so one of the things I've been very heartened about in, in my own church is the the degree to which confirmation process has been stretched out again over this sort of three years part of that sort of shrewd i think they figured out that however long they made the confirmation process parents would hang in there because they're like well we got to do this we got to get our kids confirmed so they just why not raise the bar um and also they set it at something which has a traditional um uh comparison you know so they were looking at people like hippolytus and, and his practices um, but throughout that process, then, you know, the, the students are getting to know each other. They're getting to know trusted adult leaders. Um, they're forming meaningful relationships um, so that there can be real sort of truth and life transference. You know, the essence of discipleship throughout that process It's not just about learning. It's about sort of social, spiritual, holistic, personal formation. Um, and then at the end of that, uh, there's, there's some kind of real relationship there that could potentially last a lifetime, you know. Um, and so... I would encourage any um, anyone looking at confirmation as a process to to try and make it as robust as possible, um, because uh, I think it's really necessary. Also, encourage them to adopt our books, you know, as part of the text. <laughs> of um, course, yes. Uh, we're welcome to to show up at your church and and talk to you about how to use this, um, but to really to really kind of set the bar high, assuming that assuming nothing um, about, you know, about anybody coming in. And that's, that is a real change. You know, I've worked in, um, in churches in the South where new members could come up at the end of the service and join, you know, don't know you just walking off the street and kind of join. And I think that, um, uh, that we need to, to really view, take membership seriously and the sort of the process of joining much more seriously than we have. Yeah, that's an interesting question, too, because one of the things we've been talking about a lot is what does membership actually mean? Mm -hmm. What does it mean historically? What does it mean practically today? I mean, today in the UMC, membership essentially means, well, at church conference, I can vote. Um, You know, I take these vows of membership. uh, I 
you know, I go through this process or I transfer my membership from one place to the other. But there's very little accountability in the midst of that because once you're a member, you're sort of a member for life. And some people become members of the church like they become members of the of the gym, right? They might pay their dues, but they rarely go or th- things like that. So how do we how do we sort of think about membership in a new denomination? I mean, since we're kind of starting with a blank slate uh, and thinking about where that's going, what kind of processes or forms would you recommend for catechesis in a new church? And I'm not just talking about young people, but also uh, also adults. And, and not only, you know, thinking about the theological material, but also just Christian worldview stuff. We interviewed Tim Tennant uh, a few weeks ago, and, and he was talking about the theology of the body needing to be part of our catechesis, what we believe about these things and why it's important. So if you were to think beyond what you've already written, which is phenomenal, and, and we're going to talk about nuts and bolts of that here in a minute, but what, what would you, how would you craft an ideal sort of catechetical process for a new, for a new church? Phil, let's start with you. Um, yeah. So, well, one thing that it, we, we haven't done, you know, and, and again, I, I always want to be kind of clear, we're providing a resources. We're not saying this is the be all end all is that, you know, the, um, the book of discipline actually has a lot of good stuff in it. If anybody would bother to read it, you know, and it, one of the things that's, that does note is that is the part of the process of confirmation. And I think this um, also includes membership more robustly, obviously uh, baptized young people are members of the church. Um, uh, but there is, there is a sense in which we, we do have this kind of rite of maturity that we, we put them through where they sort of their responsibility and involvement does change and kind of increase in, in this process of confirmation. Um, but one of the things that the Book of Discipline recommends is that teach doctrine, um, history. Uh, and so we've, we've got the doctrine covered a bit now with our absolute basics. So, you know, history, Wesleyan history, certainly a bit more, but then also polity, you know, and I, I, I don't, I don't happen to think we're never going to write the absolute basics of, you know, Methodist polity or Wesleyan uh, polity. But... Most boring book ever. And your artist, your artist would not have fun with that. I don't imagine. Yeah. Okay. The church council and here's how this works. And um, the, no, I mean, but, but the meaningful version of polity is talking about what it means to be part of this believing professing community and the kind of, the weight that that joyful community puts on on us, in, in terms of our you know spiritual disciplines, in terms in terms of you know meaningful service and participation in the life of the church, and and so I, I think that 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 piece, that element, that kind of call to you know be a part of this set apart community uh, needs to needs to be present, and so that that's going to talk about to some degree, just the kind of the, the ways that we are expected to, to live um, and, and worship together. And so, you know, that will depend to some degree based on church tradition, some of those kind of requirements, but some things are going to be fundamentally the same. And so um, I would, I would, you know, I think that it's important to talk about theology, I love theology. I'll never stop praising the importance of getting kind of down the basics and making sure people know them. I think it's important to talk about the Wesleyan tradition and to be excited to be part of this, you know, uh, this incredible movement that has changed uh, the the face of the earth. Um, but 
there is still more to be said. And specifically, I think that has to do with um, the life of a Christian within the church. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I think that, you know, if I was going to reduce the, the, the advice to one thing, it'd be, you know, set the bar high, you know, um, set the bar higher. That is, I grew up, I also, I also remember going to a church in my teens that, yeah, it was, it was, you know, come on down and join the church, you know, come down, we'll pray for you. Would you, you accept Jesus into your heart? If you'd like to come join the church, come forward now, you know, um, and you know, there's, there's some sort of like, uh, that sort of altar ritual. I, I, I don't want to discredit that. That's actually a really important part of my, my childhood and, and faith formation and kind of the holiness movement, you know, the, the really, the real confidence that's, that real, your whole life can be transformed in this moment right now, you know, by the appearance of the spirit um, on, a, on a soul in genuine repentance. I, I really believe that's true. Um, but I also think that Wesley was wise to institute a set of systems that required you to be committed and devoted to them. And he was somewhat relentless in what being, being happy to kind of weed people out, you know? Uh, he was, you know, I was, I reached this was, him through his journals he's he's ready to show up and just you know nope this is wrong you know we need to we got to get a new class leader here the class leader i looked at the records and they, there are too many blanks in the ledger they're obviously not showing up at people's doors the way that we want them to so you know you're out let's find someone else who's the next person up you know uh i, I think there's something something prudent about that especially when you have to get very serious about forming a people in a way that you can't sort of assume they're going to be formed by other forces. Okay. Um, the early church was very serious about this because, you know, you, you had to take some time to ponder what, it, if you were a part of the Roman legions, you had to think about this thing for a bit and figure out how you were going to handle it, right? Um, you know, your whole life could be completely turned upside down as a result of, of committing to this. And you needed to understand that and take the time to discern and be ready to take it on, you know? And I think we're living in a moment like that now as well. Um, you know, things are gonna be different from you and, and, and awkward and peculiar for you um, if you get very serious about the Christian faith uh, in, in the present. Yeah, so it's I think no longer a cultural norm. And right. uh, yeah, that, that sort of cultural Christianity kind of dropping off, consumer Christianity dropping off now. Yeah, it's not net positive for you if you if you're kind of want to go in. I mean, we've had a lot of a lot of United Methodist presidents, right? Um, it's been net not so bad for people's careers to this point, but but I I, I doubt that's going to continue to be the case. Hmm. It's helpful advice and stuff we're certainly talking about as we plan for a, a new version of Methodism coming up, uh, hopefully in the next couple of years that we'll be launching and uh, setting the bar high and thinking about you know, really getting back to our basics, the absolute basics. So in terms of the resource itself, um, you, you've also got videos that go with the book. And uh, I'm, I'm, I want you to say a little bit about the artist who does the artwork for this and, and for the videos as well, because to me, that's a really important component of what you've put together. Phil, can you tell us about that? Because I assume the same person worked on both both books. Yeah, yeah, and I think a, a big part of the success of the, the project is because God sent Andrew Chandler across my path. He, uh, I was living in Memphis when I started the the project, and Andrew, the Memphis-based artist, he's a professional 
uh, artist and illustrator has done a lot of really excellent stuff, had a great web comic for a number of years and, and illustrated other books and things. And, and he's also a, a Christian and he, um, it just kind of came across my, my radar. And so I talked to him and he, he liked the idea for the project. And so first I've actually made this, done this three times because we did a, a original version just kind of on our own um, and, uh, and then redid it for Seedbed. Um, and then now I've done this uh, three times, all three times been wonderful working with him. He's a, he's a fabulous illustrator, just very quick, you know, creative, you know, we work together well. And then, and also I think there's something about his, his faith too, that informs, you know, his thinking, like there's a kind of something about, he just gets these concepts uh, in a way. And, and so, um, you know, he's, he's back. And this time we, previously we had him drawing in a book, right? Um, so he just sped it up. So moving very quickly. One of the downsides is that Andrew is also a lefty. So his left hand is often kind of in the way we had to work around, you know, um, uh, that as far as angles go, but this time we did it all digitally. So we just all just digital illustrations. So it'll, have the same kind of I'm still reading it um Andrew's still drawing it but it'll have a little bit of a different look and instead of there being 16 chapters and videos like there were before we've, we've gone to 12 you know so we've got the um those 12 but in, in many senses it's you know it's just a natural continuation here so the same same crew except we got to add justice into the, into the mix yeah, it's it's tremendous to be able to watch the videos and and uh, for young people especially that's helpful. I know we've used some other things that have used that sort of graphical representation, and we're such a visual culture now, so so it really is helpful to to have that. Any any other ways you might suggest that churches might use this resource? We've talked about confirmation, we've talked about new member classes. Anything else you might recommend? I know um, my friend Kevin Watson at, at Candler told me he's taught it just as a Bible study, the absolute basics of the Christian faith, and then he plans to use this one as well. He, he actually helped us with the manuscript along the way um, mm-hmm. as another set of eyes. And he said, you know, he's, he's found a lot of success with it just as his, his uh, Sunday school class that he, he guest teaches. Um, people seem to, and I think that there's something about, and Phil built this tone, we've, we've really just tried to kind of keep the tone consistent. If you, if you grab a, th- a thick idea, a really rich idea, and you try to express it as clearly as possible with, with the kind of uh, an accurate uh, metaphor or image or two, right? Uh, people can, it's an invitation for people to just kind of jump in and dig and discuss. And I think really, you know, um, you, it can work at a lot of different levels. The things we're talking about never grow old, right? Um, we're talking about uh, regeneration, the new birth, you know, what happens when God comes into your life, you know, you'll never quit pondering the mystery of that, of that, of that act of God. And so I think it can work on a lot of levels. I think about using it for, um, um, I could see you using it as sort of a, I, I've run to a lot of pastors who say, well, I'm bringing, I found this really talented person who's on my staff and I built this staff with these people, but they may not be Methodist in formation originally. Well, you know, pop these things in with them and sit and talk about them a little bit, right? I could see you using it in that sort of setting. Um, I, I think there'd be a lot of uses for the thing if, if, if one tried. Yeah, I know. I do know one professor that and he teaches a systematic theology class and he just gives it to everybody as the first book, like, hey, let's just kind of get sort of to some degree the kind of the constellation of different, you know, doctrines and things we're going to talk about out on the table. And 
you know, and, and, and I use, uh, one of the things that I, my main area of focus is theology and the arts. So metaphor and thinking about kind of how, as it were, kind of, you know, creaturely things can help us to comprehend divine things, you know, because God has invested creation with, you know, the power to reflect him in certain ways and not reflect him in certain ways. And that's what the power of metaphor is. This thing is kind of like this thing. And let's talk about these two together. And, and so, um, you know, we spent a lot of time, probably most of our planning time was really just talking about which is the right metaphor to use. Um, like, how do we, how do we go ahead and, and explain the concepts? I think almost always we try and explain the concept in, in straightforward theological language, you know, you know, justification is, you know, is pardon from sin, you know, new birth is, you know, is this kind of spiritual inner regeneration. And, and then we'll, then we'll move into, let's kind of enjoy this concept a little bit longer by, by using a kind of a, a metaphor that we can play with and reflect on. So it's a way of kind of, kind of holding the idea in your mind for a little bit longer through, through the power of, of metaphor. But, um, you know, if, if people are, looking for places to, to use it, even, yeah, I think the, um, the things that I've heard are, you know, just adult studies, you know, people can take it on their church and pick it up and, and, uh, and read, you know, read through it together. And the, the book is not, you know, we're talking about theology or Wesleyan tradition, but it's not too daunting because it's got some cartoons in it. So, you know, I think people feel like they won't be embarrassed. The most of, you know, the, the benefit for of the absolute basics of the Wesleyan way or absolute basics of Christian faith, I think, are that it really is helpful for leaders to give them a sense of confidence of I can throw on this video and the video will basically kind of cut through some, you know, some headier kind of doctrinal or historical stuff in a kind of a clear way so that I don't kind of stumble over it in the process of trying to explain it. And and so um, I think that it, it really is, you know, uh, it's it's intended for people who are in the process of learning, but I think also really has a lot of benefit for for Christian leaders who who want to make sure that they kind of get the thing out in a way that they like, you know, at the start of class. The book and the video is the absolute basics of the Wesleyan way. It's available at seedbed.com. And it's out now as this podcast airs. So make sure you go and grab some copies. And uh, they always give you bulk discounts at, at Seedbed. So make sure you grab it. It's a great resource. I've had a chance to preview it. it it's really going to be great. Um, Justice, Phil, I want to thank you. Tell people how they can get hold of you personally if they want to connect. Uh, Justice, how about, how about you? How can people get hold of you? Yeah, you just, uh, just Google. My name is J-U-S-T-U-S, Justice Hunter. And there aren't many, there aren't many of me out there. So you'll figure out which one I am. I'm at United Theological Seminary in Dayton, Ohio. You can find my uh, my faculty page there, and, and just click, you know, send email to Justice Hunter, and and I'll respond uh, as soon as I can peel enough kids off me. <laughs> Phil. Yeah. Uh, so you can find me on on Twitter. I'm at Philip Talon on Twitter. One L and Philip, two L's and Talon. And uh, I'm also just very Googleable. If you um, just search, you know, Phil Talon HBU, I'll, like my university page will come up and you can email, um, you can email me that way. Uh, there is another, there is another Philip Talon though. There's two of me. There's another Philip Talon with two L's in Philip who lives in Pennsylvania. He's an insurance agent and he gets my email sometime, but he's always very nice to, to forward it to me. So <laughs> he's gotten not one, but two book contracts sent to him and he forwarded both of them. 
<laughs> but but the question is, do you get insurance questions then? Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just straight, I just delete them. <laughs> there, there's a there's a Hunter Justice spelled J U S T U S his last name, and he's actually a almost Olympic level gymnast. So if 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 you see a picture of a guy and and he has noticeable muscles, that's not me. I'm I'm the other one. Unless that's he's it. reading Cyril of Jerusalem, right? Then, yeah, right. then that's definitely you. That's 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 the new one. <laughs> Well, I want to thank you both for joining me on this edition of Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. I want to remind you that you can send your comments and questions to us via email at podcast at wesleyancovenant.org. You can follow us on Twitter at WCA Pod. Make sure you leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Subscribe to the podcast. Set it to download so you don't miss an episode. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you back here again next time on Holy Conversations.